And I'm Allie. And it's about time for true crime. Hi. (laughs) You guys, we have just spent, what, two two hours, two whole hours dealing with some technical difficulties, but it's okay and it's all worth it because, boy, do we have an episode for you. And here's the thing. It might have taken two hours and maybe two years off of my life. But damn it, we're bringing you some gruesome ass murder today. <laughs> two more gray hairs, but we're making it. We are. Um, it's been a week. How are, how are you guys doing? How's life? How's Yeah, tell us. How's everything going? Is it stormy where you are? Because it's very much setting the mood and the tone for what we're going to talk about today. It is, and it's gloomy, and it's dark, although I will say I kind of like the breeze. It's nice to have, like, fresh air that isn't soupy and muggy and stale. Not sweltering, yes. Yeah. And we have our little candle. We stuffed our faces a little bit earlier, so we are just primed and ready to go. Yes, we are. Are you? I'm feeling pretty good, and I think our listeners, they're going to be feeling pretty good right up until we get started. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, I don't know. How fast are we going to get started? Do you want to like loiter a little, chat about our week, or do you want to get like right in it? I think we've got so much to cover today. And by that, I mean, I've got like 25 pages in front of me that we're not, this will be two parts. It could be like four to five parts, I swear, but I I don't want to stretch it out that long. Also, it's just every case that we talk about is difficult to talk about, and every case, has certain aspects that we're focusing on. This one gutted me. It like Ugh. ripped my heart out, ate it, spit on it, shat on it, stomped on it, and threw it away. Crying, screaming, puking? Yes. I mean, it, it. this isn't a new case, and real true crime aficionados are at least familiar and have heard of it, but diving into it and reading everything that I've read, watching everything I watched, hearing everything I heard... This was one that I really did lose sleep over. I really was impacted by, I'm not going to stretch it out over a month for you guys. So let's get into it, shall we? We shall, I guess. So hi, hello, and welcome back to your favorite true crime podcast. You guys. We very much appreciate you being here. I have to warn you, today's case is very gruesome. I had to research, and then I took a few days off, and then I'd research again, and I'd take a few more days off, and my heart broke as I took notes, and I just have to forewarn you that you should have some tissues ready and a pod pet on your lap, um, because these warnings include crimes against children, sexual assault, abuse, description of a crime scene, autopsy descriptions, and pretty much every horrible thing that you can imagine. And if these are not for you, we completely understand. Take care of yourself. And for those of you that are still joining us, Please keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the podcast at all times because I promise you this is one of our bumpiest rides yet. I almost did a case this week in addition, and it was also going to be children, so you can all say thank you that I didn't. Yes, we're going to pump the brakes on that. And I figured this one would be far more in-depth and descriptive and heartbreaking enough that we might not need three in a row. No, I don't think so. No, and I'm I'm worried. I'm going to cry, and I know that, and I feel that in my bones. Oh, no, absolutely. Okay. 
As you know, because you clicked on it, we are covering what is commonly called the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, in which three children, babies, were murdered their very first night of summer camp in 1977. In particular, we're talking about the murders of Lori Farmer, Michelle Gousset, and Denise Milner. So we're going to hone in on the events of June 1977 at Camp Scott near Locust Grove, Oklahoma. This part of Oklahoma has been significantly influenced by Native American culture and customs and has a significant Cherokee population. And the Girl Scout camp reflected this, as we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, camp Scott covers more than 400 acres of land. Oh, that sounds like a dream. So, but we are not talking about this small little camping area. I mean, we are talking about a massive amount of just sheer farmland and woods and like a creek that runs through and all of this different property and these weird like caves in the woods and all kinds of wildlife and everything that you can imagine. We're not talking about a small little piece here. And this land was donated by the Scott family and thus earned its name. And in 1928, it was taken over by the Girl Scouts. Okay. This area was very popular for camping with, you know, the fields and the wooded areas. And the camp itself that we're going to be talking about sat on top of a bluff that then expanded over those acres and where there's the farms and a creek that ran through it. And Locust Grove was a very small community, but the community that was sort of like surrounded by all of this land. Okay. So on June 12th, 1977, families, mostly from Oklahoma, brought their very excited daughters to Tulsa to the Girl Scout sort of headquarters location where they would board buses headed toward Camp Scott to attend the Girl Scout camp. That's so interesting. So for those of you, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I was a Girl Scout growing up and I was in the Midwest, where we had all sorts of summer camps that we did the same thing. And one of my friends and I went every summer. But for us, it was always like moms would come with and moms help make up your little bed and like your bunk. And, you know, you you're like, mom, can you fold the blanket at the bottom of my bunk the way you do? And then you inevitably get in your sleeping bag and mess it all up anyway. Of course. But it's very interesting to me that the parents aren't even there for like the arrival. No, and in fact, we'll talk about that because had the parents seen the actual camp, many of them wouldn't have let their children stay there. Ah. And we'll talk about why. For many of the girls, they had gone in previous years, so they had looked forward to this ever every summer, and it was sort of like this reunion every time they got back together, and how was your school year, and what's new with you, and are you still talking to that boy, and all of those things. And for others, it was their very first time, so they were nervous, but they were excited. The campers' ages ranged from elementary school age kids to high school age, and I'll kind of go back and forth between calling them campers and scouts, Yeah. Um, but know that I mean the same thing there. The counselors there were often campers from previous years who had aged out and were now sort of switching hats and going to help make those special memories with other campers. And they were usually between 18 and 20. I think the older ones were like 25. When campers arrived and got settled in, they introduced themselves to new friends and then they were separated by age group into their units. And scouts at camp would look forward to campfire songs and s'mores and hiking, fishing, swimming, games, sports, as well as learning some outdoor survival tips and tricks. Mm -hmm. But today we're going to specifically be talking about the Kiowa unit. 
And like I said before, there's a lot of Native influence. The Kiowa unit was for younger scouts, and about 25 girls and two counselors were in this unit. A little fun fact that you may not know, but Abby and I both actually have some Native uh, ancestry, I guess. Yeah, that seems fair. We, it's in our it's in our bloodline. We we've tracked it back. We know where it is, and so so it's a little bit fun. You know, a little fun. Feeling it in the air, your little oh, bones. Yes. So once the campers arrived, they were able to choose their tent mates, and they also got to choose the tents that they stayed in. So let's talk about the setup, okay? Okay. We'll set the scene. I want you to close your eyes. Thank you for actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And imagine, and if you're driving, do not do this. Um, imagine these big, beautiful wooden cabins. I want you to picture thick doors and okay. that the campers could lock from the inside. And I want you to imagine electricity running through the cabin and a telephone just for emergencies. But there's one in each one. Now picture all of the cabins in a circle very close together, far from the woods. Mm-hmm. imagine lights all around so that even in the dead of night you could still see you could find your way to the bathroom you could find your way around you could get where you needed to go easy okay. now for the counselors i want you to imagine that there's one counselor per cabin so that each cabin or tent or what have you has a trusted adult available to them and i also want you to imagine a secure camp with high fences and security do you feel safe yeah absolutely okay Now, open your eyes, disregard everything I just said, because absolutely none of that was at Camp Scott in 1977. In all seriousness, the camp was set up in a way that wasn't great, and I will give you the facts, and then I will give you my opinion. But we will start with the facts, I promise. Again, we're focusing on the Kiowa unit, so I can only speak to how their camp was set up and the maps that I saw of that and sort of able to describe it to you, and and I'll make sure that a map is available on, on our Instagram page. But... There's eight tents in total, and when I say tents, I mean this loosely. So you've got these wooden platforms, mm-hmm. okay? There's a couple steps up, and then you get onto the platform. And on the platform is, I don't know, canvas walls, like these canvas tent material walls yep. that are secured down to the platform with these like little loops, and the platform has these little pegs that they hook onto. Okay. So they're just sort of like held taut by like the top pole and then the little loop that they're sitting on. Inside the tent, there's four cots for the campers to sleep in and the canvas flaps would open and close and there's no door. So there's, these are just secured by these little loops. There is literally nothing else. Maybe a few zippers if you're lucky, but just flaps. There's no way to keep anyone out and there's no way to keep anyone in. And like I said, there were eight tents in total. However, some sources are going to tell you seven. And the reason for this is not that nobody can count, but it is because depending on the source, they don't count the counselor's tent. See, the counselors had their own tent and they were the first one. And then the other camper tents sort of counted off and there was one through seven. But I'm going to say one through eight and I'm going to count the counselors as one because they are the first tent. Okay. And I don't want to leave anybody out, but also... If we're talking about the first tent, I want you to know that that's tent one. So you'll kind of see it called both. Moving on, the counselor's tent was tent number one. The rest were in a crescent, half-moon, rainbow-type shape with tent eight at the end. They all wrap around. So you've got this really odd setup where if you look at it like a rainbow, the counselors are at one end of the rainbow. 
And then the campers all spread out, which means with each tent, obviously you get further and further away from the adults. That seems safe, question mark? No. <laughs> false. The, the answer is false. Um, now, because they're at the beginning of the arc, they can't really see the camps. Like, pretty much by tent four, you can't see anything. Also, in the center of the arc was a building where the showers were. So it literally, like, the line that you could draw from tent one to eight is completely obstructed by this shower building in the middle. So you've got the adults on the other side of this building, and they are spread out, and they are spread out far. Yeah, that does not sound good at all. Ten eight, the very last one, is the closest to the woods, and unfortunately, that's the one that we're going to be talking the most about today. Of course it is. There was a fence that went around Camp Scott, but it was easily jumped. No one patrolled the grounds. I don't even think it was a complete fence. Like, I think it was up in some areas, but there were a bunch of gaps. Ooh. It was really just to mark the land. It wasn't... Like, it, it marked the private property. It wasn't designed to keep anyone in or anyone out. So my opinion is that this setup sucks monkey balls. And there's no possible way that the count- the counselors that were in Tent 1 were aware of what was going on anywhere, again, in my opinion, beyond Tent 4. There's just no way. <laughs> yeah. And that's not their fault. This was the setup of the campsite, and it spreads the campers out, and the majority of the campers aren't near the counselors. And again, we're talking about kids, and in the Kiowa unit, I think the oldest was 10. Like, they're from 8 to 10, maybe 11 years old. I mean, these aren't, like, 16-year-olds where you could kind of trust them to be a little bit further away. I mean, with these babies, some of them still believe in Santa. I mean, who doesn't? But you know what I mean? Yeah, and I I think also that part of the issue with the setup is that they're putting younger kids here. You know, like you said, they're not 16, they're 8. I worked as a camp counselor after I went to camp, and you know the amount of 8-year-olds that, like, they get homesick, and my trick, and this worked because they're babies, was to give them a little stuffed animal and say, like, this is my special stuffy from home. It wasn't. But I was like, this is my special stuffy. It reminds me of home. It'll, it'll keep you safe tonight. And that worked because that's like the age group that we're talking about. Your heart is going to be ripped out and stomped on because we'll get there. Just trust me. That That is exactly the age group that we're talking about. That level of homesickness and just wanting mommy and daddy and hold on to that. Yay. So... If I were to set this up, I would do things very differently. I would I would do a combination of or a variation of these things. Now, I'd either have the counselor tent in the middle of like a circle where they all like open their doors and they're facing the adult cabin. Or I would say we could, I don't know, maybe have counselors in each tent so that they're assigned to each other you know what i'm saying so like they have their one person because you've got two to three counselors responsible for 25 kids no no way no way yeah and i'll say that in some places when they have really big cabins like cabins that fit six to eight girls that's a lot more feasible but especially when it's the platform tents that's so hard Yes, these are platforms. They've got four cots inside them. They all have kids in them, and the counselors are on the opposite side, which is terrible. And 
I also think that just having bigger tents or bigger like cabins or something like that. First of all, get some fucking walls. Okay. Um, a door would be nice. I don't think we're asking for much there. And even if that means having six to eight of them in one of these cabins and that means bunk beds, so be it. That's part of camp. That's part of the appeal for a lot of them. And having so few together, I think, is risky. And it proves to be fatal in this case. I would also have rounds of walking around the camp. I would have counselors that, yeah, this is your shift tonight. You are up all night or you're up half the night. You're doing whatever and you're tapping in and out. But you need to go in and make sure that every single kid is okay every single time. Mm -hmm. There also should be security on the perimeter. None of these things existed. None of this was there. And you don't know what you don't know. And I understand that. And this was unprecedented. What happened here was absolutely, it it ripped the hearts out out of the community. It was the most terrifying thing people had heard of in their lifetime. No one thought this was possible. It was the literal boogeyman. And yet, all of these things sort of allowed it to happen. Because there were no other measures to change it. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. And I'm already anxious and I'm already scared. So, regardless, there weren't counselors in every tent. There wasn't any way for the counselors to know what was going on in or around the other tents because they were spread out so far away. And on June 12th, 1977, this is where these eager campers were headed to. They have their little suitcases and their little bug spray and their little jammies and their notebooks and their pencils to write letters home to mom and dad. And they're so excited to see old friends and make new ones and have fun at sleepaway camp. Of these campers was eight-year-old Lori Farmer. Lori was born June 18, 1968. From early on, Lori's parents, Sherry and Beau, noticed that Lori was gifted. She had learned to read far before others her age, and before she was two years old, she could recite the Pledge of Allegiance. That's so cute. And also, damn, And they were flabbergasted. They're like, she didn't even miss a beat. She got every single... I mean, she could even pronounce the words. That's hard enough, let alone recite it in order. As a child, she would see clothing that her mom was wearing, and she would say, oh, you wore that at Christmas two years ago. And her mom was like, what? She'd go dig out pictures, and sure enough, that was what she wore Christmas two years ago. I mean, she just, she had this memory, and she was brilliant, but she was just so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at the world. That's so cute. She is the most beautiful little baby. And we'll have photos of her on our Instagram, but my God. Now, she was beautiful she had big blue eyes blonde hair often in little pigtails and her smile lit up her entire face she just had one of those smiles and there's there's these cutest little pictures of her and her little siblings and you just want to pinch her cheeks you really do she was academically ahead of kids her age uh by years she was like one of those naturally brilliant little kids and you're like wow this kid's going places like she just picked up material like to teach it to herself she was there she was the firstborn and her parents absolutely adored her and i have to say her parents were absolute knockouts like her mom even in her late 70s today is still this beautiful southern belle her dad has the same smile that she had just a beautiful girl and they said that she was just such a happy and easy baby like she she wasn't sick often she was giggly she was cute she just had those big eyes that just oh my god it melts your heart and they joked that because she was such a good baby, it's why she wasn't an only child long. And they shot him out rapid fire. In seven years, they had five kids. Holy 
crap. With Lori as the oldest. That is what they say, though. The first is easy so that the second one comes quick. (laughs) And you can see the photos of all the kids together with Sherry and Bo. And my God, what a beautiful family. Kids all look happy. The parents look happy. They're well taken care of. They're clean and cared for. And it's everything you wish you could be able to offer your children. And best of all, they all had each other. And even though all of the children were pretty close in age, they did all look up to and adore Lori. Her sister, Misty, was actually the second born, so they were actually only 18 months apart. And growing up, they had shared a bedroom, friend groups, secrets, clothes, you name it, they shared it. They were inseparable. That is so cute. Joined at the hip. And Lori was only eight, and she had never been to summer camp before, any summer camp before. And she wasn't sure which camp she wanted to go to. She actually had a few that she could choose from. She was deciding between the Girl Scouts and the YMCA camp. What breaks my heart is she asked her mom, Sherry, to help her decide which camp to go to because she just couldn't choose. And Sherry chose the Girl Scout camp. And not only that, she also chose the session that she was going to attend, which meant that would decide which week or set of weeks that she was going to go to. And Sherry says that she has to live with this decision that she made every single day. That day, Sherry and Bo helped little Lori onto the bus to head to camp. Her dad was a doctor, and actually, I think from 1977 on, he's been, like, the director of the emergency department in the hospital that he works at, so he's done very well for himself. But he was working the night shift, so he had a shift to go to the hospital in Tulsa, and so they were a bit pressed for time, and Lori got on the bus, she found a window seat, and she waved goodbye, and she said, I love you, as the bus pulled away. Stop, I'm already gonna cry. Lori's ninth birthday was going to be June 18th, which was the following Saturday, and Father's Day was that Sunday. So the family had planned a little surprise trip. They weren't going to tell her, and they were going to show up at camp and sort of have like a little family celebration weekend to surprise her. Oh, gosh. I'm going to... I know. Eight years old. I can't. Mm-hmm. Next is Michelle Gousset. She's nine years old, and she was born July 22nd, 1967, to Frank and Georgianne Gousset. Michelle had a little brother who was home with their parents when she went to Camp Scott. Michelle had glasses and the cutest little gap between her two front teeth, and she had these forehead bangs that were so cute. She was very athletic, and she loved sports. She played on a bunch of different sports teams, and she loved soccer. I think soccer was her favorite, but I could be wrong. She also loved the color purple, and her entire bedroom was purple. And there's photos of this room. It's like the walls are, the posters are, the bedding's purple. Everything in there is purple. I can speak for the purple kids. Um, I was one. When you <laughs> love purple as a child, it's not like other people's favorite color. We're nope. like, I'm going to pick out this folder because it's the like my favorite color. No, everything's fucking purple. It's purple walls. It's purple wallpaper with the little peace, love, and happiness that did match the purple walls speaking for a friend and also <laughs> purple shoes purple cl- purple. purple purple people are a different breed <laughs> oh for sure she loved horticulture and plants which for her age being nine years old to have such a love for plants and everything okay she's literally me at nine minus the athleticism because i could not i couldn't but didn't she like african violets yep so she actually loved her african violets so much that she asked her parents to promise her i'm pretty sure pinky swear say take care of them until i get home because she just she like cared for and adored their plants so much she was like you take care of them like i would oh and she made them promise 
Her father said that when she hugged him goodbye before she went to camp, she hugged him so tight that it was like she knew she wasn't going to see him again. He said it was something like a premonition, but there was just something in the way that she hugged him and how tight she hugged him and how long that it was more than just a goodbye, I'm going to camp. Yeah. And that absolutely wrecked me. Like, I cried writing that. I am impressed that I have not cried saying it, but just... The fact that I feel like she just had this idea, yeah. you know, this feeling, and even if she never said it, it stuck with the family. Oh, absolute goosebumps. The last of the three is 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner. She went by Denise. She mm-hmm. was born February 5th, 1967 to Betty and Walter Milner. Her dad was a police officer in Tulsa, and her mom was a hospital lab tech. Uh, They were African-American, and Denise was either the only African-American girl at camp or one of two. Okay. Denise grew up in a very religious family, and she was, oh my god, so beautiful. And I think she just, she had one of those faces where you could just kind of see how beautiful she was going to be when she grew up, too. Like, you knew exactly what she was going to look like at 25, and she was striking. Yeah. She already looked grown up. She had these big brown eyes, and she looked just like her mom. Ugh. Denise had taught herself to read and write, and she had taught herself math by four years old. Like, simple math. Oh, my God. I mean, these are all brilliant kids. She'd even been accepted into a prestigious middle school for gifted students. And so we have one who was saying the Pledge of Allegiance by two. Mm-hmm. One who's taking care of one of the most notoriously difficult houseplants by the age of nine. And another who's, what, doing math by four and in a gifted school at middle school? Oh, yeah. This is a cabin, I mean, well put together. At least they all were like the same breed of genius, but holy hell. Oh, I know. And Denise had a five-year-old sister at home that she adored, like adored, loved taking care of her, loved being a big sister. And she was really sad to be far away from her while she was at camp. But she was excited to go make new friends have some fun, but she was sad to leave family behind. And she had worked her butt off selling Girl Scout cookies, and she'd actually earned enough money to send herself to camp. Yes, Denise. Get it. And just before camp was about to start, the friends that Denise had planned to go with all backed out. Oh. So of the group of them, they all, for whatever reason, either couldn't go, chose not to go, whatever it was, but Denise had already paid her way, and she had wanted to go, but now she was going alone. Yeah. And as my little anxious self would have, I would have been like, so up. I would have been like, that's it. I'm not going. That's it. I can't go. Well, it's so hard when you go. And normally girls do go in groups or pairs at least so that they have a buddy. And she was looking forward to being able to go with them. And she had wanted to go back to back out. She had told her mom that she didn't want to go. Oh, God. And her mom convinced her to go. She told oh, her. Oh, God. <laughs> She told her it would help her be more independent and that she just had to give it a try. That if she hated it, she could call her and they would be there. They would go pick her up, but you have to give it a shot. You worked hard for this. You wanted to go. We don't quit. Go give it a shot. See how you feel. And Denise agreed. So when I got time to board the buses, Denise had clung to her mom's side. She was reluctant to go. She was homesick already. She was already crying, which I can absolutely relate to. Yeah. I was that kid. And an older scout, Michelle Hoffman, not to be confused with Michelle Gousset, that's not who we're talking about here, but she, this girl, Hoffman, was 15. 
And she wasn't a counselor yet, but she had been going to camp for something like five years already. And she was starting to take on like these little leadership roles for the counselors. Like she wasn't a counselor yet, but she was definitely on her way to be one. She was like a counselor in training, like a CIT. Oh, yes. She was very excited to go. She was like camp was all that she looked forward to. And she noticed Denise like kind of stuck to her mom looking really sad and so she went up and introduced herself and I'm like what a cool 15 year old to go up there introduced herself to Betty introduced herself to Denise and just tried to help her and like how are you are you nervous do you need anything blah 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 and so Betty said yeah well Denise here she's she's nervous to go she's she's already feeling homesick and Michelle said is it all right if I sit with you on the bus there is that okay stop so with that Denise agreed when she got on the bus and she sat with Michelle the whole way there. And Betty had encouraged Denise to stick it out and that she would have so much fun. That she couldn't wait to hear all about it. But Denise had asked Michelle to make sure that if Denise needed to call, that she made sure she got to a phone. Remember 1977? She didn't, she wasn't going with a cell phone in her pocket. So she asked Michelle, this, this older girl, this girl who befriended her, who knew the ropes, you know? Right. To make sure that if she needed to call home that she'd be able to. Michelle said yes and said that she would be with her until she got settled, until she felt comfortable. When the campers officially arrived at Camp Scott, again, they chose their tent mates. Denise, Lori, and Michelle, the quietest and the shyest girls in the whole Kiowa unit, met and chose to bunk together. And they chose tent eight, which was the furthest tent away from the counselors in the tent the closest to the woods. And I hate that because when you're like going away to camp, it's very exciting. It doesn't feel big and scary. Like it might to go away from home, but the big and the scary is being away from home. The ideal is that the big and the scary is not the place that you are. Exactly. And I I remember being that age and being like, oh, well, I wish I had like the cool cabin, like whatever that is. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's the one furthest away from the potty because it smells. And sometimes it's like the closest to another unit or the pool or the boys or like whatever you want. But there was a time when the coolest cabin is the one furthest away from the counselors and like not quite the spookiest, but like the woodsiest. And I can imagine that's how this feels for three girls that are I I mean, really, pardon my expression, I don't have a better one off the top of my head, but like balls to the walls about the things they care about. Mm -hmm. They're so smart. They're so gifted. They want to do the thing to their utmost ability. Well, and it's funny you say that because I got the sense and I like that you think that this think this differently because I took it as they were the shyest ones. And so they got whatever was left. Ah. And so I was thinking, but it's actually you're if you've got a point where if they were like, well, if I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And like, all right, I'll pick the furthest one away. But this other girl had said later, just after, you know, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about murders here after the murder. She said that when she got there, she actually initially chose tent eight with her tent mates. And then she kind of looked around. She's like, this is like way too far away. I'm going to go back. And so she chose a different one. Ah, and it just as easily could have been her. Right. Right. And so the idea that in my head, I'm like, did everyone kind of get spooked out from that? And, you know, as I said, there, there's four cots. So there's supposed to be four campers per tent here. And again, tent very loosely, tent, cabin, whatever you want to call it. The fourth girl was actually due the next day. So they were going to have a fourth little tent mate, if you will. Um, but she wasn't there yet. So it was just the three of them. I feel like they could have gotten caught with what was left. 
And again, unfortunately, they were the furthest away. Lori Farmer, at eight years old, was the youngest one in the Kiowa unit. The youngest one, the furthest away, does not sit well with me. So the first night. The first night, the girls all gathered for dinner, and then an unexpected thunderstorm hit. And I have to say the irony, because as Abby and I sit here and record this, there is a raging thunderstorm going on. And if you can hear the rain, I apologize. Again, we could not get out of the technical issues, and this just makes sense. It is really setting the tone for the exact night that they had at camp. It's so spooky. And also, I'm sorry because I'm adding a lot of camp anecdotes, but this was like my entire childhood. So this hits for me in a different way. Yeah. But the unexpected thunderstorm at camp can be so fun and so terrifying in the exact same breath. Because normally, right, you're an itty bitty thing and it gets dark and cloudy and stormy and scary and maybe the thunder is really loud and the lightning's really bright and you don't expect any of it and when you're out at camp in the middle of the night it's not like being in a town there's no lights around and yes it does mean you can see a lot more stars and it's pretty cool but when you can't see anything except when lightning cracks and the only thing covering you are canvas walls it can be really spooky especially when you're a kid But also, you're like, wait, this is so cool. Like, I'm out in the middle of it. But you're also kind of freaked out. It's like like a good adrenaline response when it's done well. And that's kind of exactly what happened here. Because we weren't expecting this thunderstorm. And the counselors hadn't really prepared for it. So they were kind of like, oh, we're not really sure what to have them do. So they kind of gathered for dinner. And then they, like, sang some songs. And I think they might have had a book read to them. Maybe, like, some spooky story. I'm not sure. But then they all went to their tents, and the girls were encouraged to write letters home. And I think this was just the counselors like, oh, this is what we'll do. This is the activity. Go write your first letter home. Tell your your family what day one at camp was like. Right. And it's still raining outside. It's thundering. It is kind of spooky. It is a little weird, but it's new. It's exciting, what have you. And all of them sort of stayed up telling stories they told like spooky scary camp stories then they like joked around about what happened at school that year and got to know each other because some of them were strangers and some of them only got to see each other at camp every year so it was like catching up and all of this right i always like to include here that we need to make a mental note that this isn't like a camp that you'd go to today no cell phones Homesick campers could not FaceTime mom. They couldn't text dad. They weren't playing heads up or Candy Crush or scrolling Instagram to pass time. And in a way, I do envy that, that there was a time where it wasn't all digital and you weren't reachable every second of the day. But in this case, it meant that they were entirely alone. They didn't have a way to call anyone. They were in the middle of several hundred acres of land. They were very far from home and their counselors weren't that much older than them. And I mean, when you're 10... And someone's 18. Sure, 18 sounds really mature. But I think we can all agree that at 18, you do not know everything. Yeah. And that that is a ton of responsibility. And also, being not in a digital age where you're not reachable all the time sounds really great until you remember that you're not reachable at all. And there's a difference there, right? It's it's different than being like, hey, you have my phone, camp counselor, because I'm not allowed to have it on me all the time. But this is what's happening. I need my phone. Or like all of the phones are stored in the main office or something. You know what I mean? Where Mm -hmm. there's like a central locale. You know where it's at. You know what a plan is. It's totally different than being entirely isolated. 
And like you said, you might know a lot at 18. And I'd venture to say you probably think you know everything at 18. But give it a few years. You'll know nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how often camps actually run so smoothly without any issues, given the fact that most of its employees (laughs) are 18 to 20. The other thing that a lot of the campers that went this time and who had gone for years said was they had never seen darkness the way that they saw it at Camp Scott. And it wasn't because this was like some uncharacteristically like dark, shady place. I mean, it just didn't have streetlights. Right. There there were lanterns. I mean, they had fires and stuff like that, but there was no electricity out and about there it wasn't lit up to get to the showers it wasn't lit up to get to the bathroom or to get to the dining hall or things like that and so if you had to get up in the middle of the night it was pitch black i mean you couldn't see a foot in front of you and that was terrifying that was really unsettling for a lot of them and of course you can't see anything so your other senses pick up so you hear more and like what was that noise over there and oh the woods is so close and it was a it was an experience that they said you had to get used to because it really was unsettling at first Also, I would say the other thing to note about being at camp, if you haven't, is that usually with like capitalized camps, meaning like places where people can come and pay for a session or pay to stay for like a week or so, and it's not just like a plot of land, here you go. Mm -hmm. But when it's an event run camp, the campsites are like, like bulldozed, right? So there's some dirt, some patchiness where it's pretty much no trees, just the cabins, the tents the firing, all that. But it doesn't mean that there aren't an insane amount of roots from all the trees that grow around it. So even when you're walking, you need a flashlight or you're going to like face plant. You're clumsy ass. Yeah, I'm speaking from experience. (laughs) Oh my. But it's just one of those things that you don't think about until you're there and you're like, oh, I, I really do have to look where I'm going. I do need a light to do this. And also the bathrooms. No electricity. It's just a latrine. And that's yes, pretty much a glorified porta potty. So I wouldn't even call it glorified. <laughs> well, hey, if you put the lids down, they don't smell. So public service announcement, put your lid down. <laughs> so as I mentioned, they all wrote letters home. Yes. And we have those letters, what they wrote. Oh, you're you're going to wreck me. I intend to, yes. So we'll start with Lori Farmers. Again, she's eight years old, and I feel like this is just very well written for an eight-year-old. Oh. She goes, Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy. Again, these are all her siblings. Oh. We're just re- getting ready to go to bed at 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm, having a lot of fun. I've met two friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. Started raining on the way back from dinner, and we're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. With love? You are eight years old. With love? Hardly anything else to do? Hardly anything else to do. She's eight. You just want to pinch her cheeks. I want to pinch her cheeks and give her a little smooch on the forehead and a big hug and a sweatshirt. Yeah. That's it. Also, can I just say... There's something about just meeting two girls and you're already friends that is just so itty bitty baby summer camp and yep, I love. I, I met two friends we're living together. They have two friends. And these are their names. Michelle and Denise. And I probably had to ask them how to spell it. 
Oh, so that's Lori's letter. Okay. Now, now Michelle's. This has got some personality, and this to me is like epitome of a nine-year-old because I I love it. So she chose to write to her aunt. Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> I'm writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. Oh. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. I love that. I love the pride. Oh, and by the way, my room, purple. <laughs> Bet you wish she had it. Mm-hmm. She's so cute. I love the full names. Yep. Oh. Just in case you were wondering. How are you? fine how are you i'm good i'm doing great we'll be right back you know it's just i so sweet and lastly the one that gets me the most was written by denise my god i really hope you guys can hear this thunder and the reason why this resonates with me is because i went to a summer camp that my family was told was not a very religious summer camp it was only a partially religious summer camp and it was oh so not partially and entirely 100 percent fully religious in which I was told that um, I was going to hell, my family was going to hell, and all of these things because I didn't have fit whatever criteria. And I wanted to go home so bad. And I wrote letters wanting to go home. I had lost 10 pounds in like five days. I stopped eating. It was horrible. Aww. Horrible, horrible, horrible. And this girl would have been me. Oh, baby Allie. So remember, Denise had been really excited to go at first. But then her friends backed out at the very last minute. And she became reluctant. And this is what she wrote that first night. Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day, it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everyone. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Stop. Let Denise go home. Huddled in their tents for the night, the scouts played games, they stayed up talking, they were all excited for what was to come. Ten eight, where Denise, Michelle, and Lori were, were the furthest away, and they were probably the quietest kids, just having not known each other prior to meeting that day, and at first were pretty mellow, but as the evening rolled on, they were laughing and giggling together as much as the rest of them. Oh. So their tent was just as loud as the others. Good. Their little flashlights and their little stories and maybe the little card games and doing whatever it was that they were doing. They were just like everybody else. I bet there was like a Mad Libs going on in that tent. I hope so. And they were like, your favorite color. And then when, you know, Michelle was like purple. And then, you know, Denise and Lori had to chime in and be like, "Mm, we should make it blue or pink or whatever. And it would probably be the cutest little bickering you've ever seen in your life. And I wish they were around to tell us about it. And I'm just, I'm picturing all of this. It's way too familiar. At 10 p.m., the counselors did a head count, as was customary. That's what they were to do. And everyone was accounted for. And that was pretty much it for the night. Denise was homesick. She had wanted to call her mom. The counselor had told her, get some sleep. I'll let you call in the morning. Mm. But morning didn't come for Denise. Oh, Denise. A couple of times, a a counselor had gotten up to tell some girls to go to bed, to quiet down. They were up chatting. Some of them were like, chatting by the showers and they she went out had to walk them back to their tent like no 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 giggling let's go go to go to sleep no it's your first night nerves and excitement and whatever but really it's time to go to bed well and also the counselors just spent all day setting all of the units up checking all of the kids in and getting them all set up and they're like eyes probably twitching like hey eight-year-old go to freaking bed it's 12 like (laughs) yeah yeah And so when the counselors had done the final check and made sure that everybody was in their tent, 
They went to bed, and by the time they woke up, three of the campers were dead. Fuck. So the next morning, one of the counselors, Carla, woke up early to be the first to head to the showers. This was around 6 a.m. And at camps, hot water is hard to come by, and for real, as Ricky Bobby said, if you're not first, you're last. (laughs) The shower building was in the middle of the arc, like we talked about, which completely obstructed the view from the counselor's tent to the last few tents. Maybe she had gone to the latrine, which is like a little further away, what have you, but as she's walking, she is stopped in her tracks. Just off the side of the trail, she found a young girl, not moving, who had only a shirt on that had been pulled up. No. She didn't know who this girl was, but she knew that she didn't look good, and she ran to get the camp nurse. The nurse arrived immediately and was able to confirm that this child was deceased. Then the camp director, I believe her name was Barbara Day, and her husband, I think his name was Richard, also got there to sort of figure out what the hell just happened. And Richard pulled the sleeping bag over her to cover her because she had been naked from the waist down. And he just wanted to preserve her dignity. And when he touched the other sleeping bags that were there, because there were a couple, he noticed that they felt heavy, so he left those alone. He didn't know what that was. Law enforcement arrived quickly, and they're able to determine that this is 10-year-old Denise Milner, who was found on top of her sleeping bags. Her hands had been bound behind her back with rope. She had been gagged with what looked like a hand-sewn gag, like homemade. She had rope tied so tightly around her neck that it almost wasn't visible because it pressed in so much that you couldn't even see it. The medical examiner could barely get his finger under it. And she had black duct tape across her chest. When they open the other two sleeping bags at the scene, they find the bodies of Michelle Gousset and Lori Farmer. They were both scrunched to the bottom of their sleeping bags, and the sheets from their beds were soaked in blood and also stuffed in the sleeping bags with them. And there was so much blood. They both had trauma to their heads as if they'd been beaten in the head with an instrument of some kind. Okay. Lori had been beat to the back of her head, so from the front, she just looked like she was sleeping. Oh. And she's the baby. She's the eight-year-old. So absolute... Shock. Absolute pure chaos, shock, grief, panic, terror, all of the above. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. By 10 a.m., just 12 hours after the girls had gone to bed for the night, the sheriff's office had contacted other law enforcement agencies to assist. Of those was the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, or OSBI. I'll be calling it OSBI because that is, oh, so much easier. (laughs) And several vehicles that started pulling up to the camp, there was, like, this helicopter surveying the scene. And by now, the other campers knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what it was. Counselors were instructed by the camp director to have all of the campers pack their things quickly and board the buses to go back to Tulsa. As the buses were leaving, and I, I want to say the road that led into the camp was called, like, Cookie Trail. I mean, it was just, it. come on, like, the cutest sounding thing, all painted with this horrible, horrible attack. And as they're pulling down this road, the campers are looking out the windows, and they see all these news vans and cameras and reporters oh. out. That's so heavy. Like... <laughs> 
and it was just it was like vultures that just like sniffed out a murder and, and like flocked over just trying to get any information meanwhile the kids that were there that were sleeping right next to where all this happened had no idea what was going on so the osbi began investigating the scene and found some strange items present they found someone's glasses and they weren't readers they were prescription glasses they knew them to be somebody's prescription glasses they found a roll of black duct tape that looked a lot like the tape that was on Denise's body. Okay. They also found a big flashlight. And it wasn't like the flashlights that you'd think of now. I mean, hell, now we'd probably think of our phones, but otherwise you'd think of like the long, thin ones. But this is one of those like big, fat, short, fat yeah. flashlights with the handle. And it kind of looked weird. It was a little bizarre. It had part of a black trash bag wrapped around the lens that had been secured in place with some masking tape. Oh, so like to lessen the amount. Oh, yes. Okay. It blocked how much light was shining out. Right. And in pitch blackness, you didn't need much. Right. But to prevent it from being so bright that it would catch someone's eye and be distracting and be seen through the canvas walls. You'd want. It was obstructed. Yeah. Once the lens was unscrewed, they found a crumpled up page of newspaper that had been stuffed inside. Belief here was that this was to prevent the batteries from moving around and making a sound, which just made it clear that whoever this belonged to had gone through a lot of trouble to make sure that the light wasn't very bright and that it didn't make much noise because it would kind of like jingle. Uh, and so with this newspaper stuffed in, it kept everything in place. There wasn't a whole lot of room for it to move around and it didn't make much sound. Did so, you say malice aforethought? Did you say premeditation? Yeah. That I did. And I'm sure there were some well-intentioned reasons for doing this. But in this case, this was premeditation at its most basic. Let's not, let's not uh, split hairs there. The bodies were found about 300 feet from their tent. Again, tent eight. Inside the tent was another horror scene. Notable here was that the bedding had been stripped from the beds. The, street, the sheets and the pillowcases weren't there because they had been stuffed in the sleeping bags that were found with the bodies. So it was kind of like an empty looking cot, but with blood everywhere. The blood had sunk into the panels of the wooden platform the tent was secured to. It had sunk into the mattresses. And inside and outside the canvas walls of the tent, there was like blood spatter Ugh. different kinds of shoe prints were found in the blood on the floor though they couldn't determine like exact shoe size i mean they had estimates it was probably like a nine and a half they weren't t totally sure but they could determine that there were different shoes with different patterns one looked like a, this waffle pattern another one looked like a bigger like military style boot oh interesting okay it was evident that at least part of the attack was committed inside their tent, and some of it was committed over where the bodies were found. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Oof. These were all just such bright and sweet young girls who were so very loved by their families, whose families wanted them to go to camp and to learn, have fun, and make lifelong friends, and come home and tell the family the stories of what they learned and what they got to do and all the memories that they made. And all of this was ripped from them their very first night. And I just feel so protective over the victims that we talk about in all of our cases, but especially these little girls. And remember, this case is unsolved. I hate everything. And I totally get you. I, I want to hug all of them. 
And I want all, all of them to have hot cocoa with like all of the extra marshmallows they possibly can have. It just absolutely breaks my heart what, what they had to go through. And not to be that guy, but like on night one, you couldn't even let them have like a few fucking days of fun first. No. Abhorrent. Fucking this asshole. This person or people, depending on the theory you subscribe to, and we'll talk all about that in the next episode. Had been planning this. This was all part of the scheme. I hate it. The families all received calls in the morning informing them that their kids were dead. They were told it was an accident, but they weren't given any other information. They were told, we're so sorry to tell you your child is dead. There was an accident. I, I can't tell you anything else at this, at this time. Lori Farmer's mother, Sherry, said... I can't even explain how horrific it was to try to process that, and we had no more information for many hours. We cried, but having four other children, we tried to get through the day. Oh. The family only thought that Lori was dead. They didn't have any idea what happened, so was it a sudden health issue? Was it a freak thing? Was it an accident at camp? Was it a drowning? They had no information, and it stayed like this for hours. They tried their best to take it quite literally one minute at a time, and obviously they weren't sitting around watching TV, yeah. but a neighbor had been. Oh, okay. I was going to say, yeah, with four kids, you literally can't. But And after being given the news that your oldest, your firstborn, yeah. was found dead at camp, I don't think you're sitting around lounging watching TV. No, I'm not going to, like, catch up on the funnies, you know? No, and obviously they were busy and distraught. And so a neighbor comes to their house and they're like what in the world and says have you been watching the news worst worst question okay so apparently the neighbor had been watching the news and learned that there had been a brutal attack where not just one but three campers from camp scott were murdered in a violent way so this is how the family finds out I'm so mad for them. They find out that he might have died horribly. Don't know. Because the news got ahead of the story. Because the news published everything before families were notified. And Bo Farmer said this. He said that they were actually the camp's third phone call. Families were not the first priority. The very first phone call was to their insurance company. Absolutely. The second phone call was to their attorney. Yep. And lastly, they figured we may as well let the families know that their babies aren't coming home. I understand that there's some amount of liability that you have to know how to say those things. I get it. All the families, their babies are dead. Come on. I know. Frankly, the ideal way to handle it is know what you're allowed to say ahead of time. And then first call is the families. Ideally, it's make sure you have a camp that's run smoothly enough that this isn't fucking possible. I'm with you. And then you have to make no phone calls. Then forget about it. Your insurance company, happy. Attorney, happy. Campers' families ecstatic. They can't wait. You I'm, assholes. I'm with you. I do know at camps things happen all the time. Not this. This is fucking heinous. But peanut allergies where, you know, someone goes into anaphylactic shock. There's all kinds of things, and I get that. And I don't want to sound oddly like I'm living in a world full of unicorns shitting rainbows because I love that world, but I know it's not real. 
But this should never have had to fucking happen. And frankly, third on the list is way too far fucking down. All three of the families found out about the manner of death from the news. Mm-hmm. And to me, mm-hmm. personally, I agree with the families not being notified yet because at this time, they didn't know. Sure, it looked like an attack. Well, what were you going to say? Well, it looked like she got beat. No, they, they have to be able to give facts. The facts are that she's deceased. And that it, and it and surely you should have been able to say, and it looked like whatever. But you've got nothing to go on right now. What chaps my ass is that the news said, fuck the families. Yeah. I've got a story to print. And I have to get on my soapbox here. Do it. Because I absolutely despise when the media gets a hold of a story and releases Everything they've heard before, law enforcement can make, honestly, confirmations, confirm that this information is true, that their first opinion or their first impression was the correct one, and that they can make proper fucking notifications. This was a matter of hours since they had been murdered, and their families had only just been notified that they were dead. The media was just quick to pick up the story and announce to the world that three young girls had been beaten to death at camp, and that was how their families learned of the circumstances. And of course, of course, of course, we need the news, we need the media, the fact-checking reports, writers, editors, you name it, we need it, but that's not what I mean. And if you are the kind of person that hears of a tragedy and says, yes, I need to be the first one to say this and I have to say it the loudest so that I can make money, you have earned your piece of shit trophy and your spot in hell. Thank you. Have a nice day. Here's your t-shirt. Okay? They could also polish the little turd trophy that they get when they enter into the gates. Yeah, and then that can be shoved up their ass. So, (laughs) also, that requires some means of verification. You actually have to make sure that the information you're spewing is, in fact, factual. And we all know that doesn't always happen. Well, and to add to your soapbox, that's what gets me, right? We do talk about the need for accurate news, for good journalism, for actual storytelling. How can you as a journalist be convinced that you are actually doing your job to this degree to spread correct information, to tell accurate stories and shed light on real tragedies when you don't fucking know what the tragedy is? And frankly, you're adding to it. Absolutely. You are compounding the victims here. Thank you very much. And I have to say that on this podcast, we take our research very seriously. We fact check and we fact check again. And if we make mistakes, we will be the first to admit that. God knows that we are human. And we take the human aspect into consideration in everything that we talk about. But when we talk about these cases, we're trying to bring awareness to the circumstances and the cases. We're trying to talk about the victims and that their story can be told. We're trying to take what we can learn from these circumstances because not if, but when those monsters come back out again, how best can we be prepared? I know that everybody listening to this is the share your location kind of person and the leave your fingerprints in an Uber kind of person. Why? Because we want to be prepared because we've heard the horror stories because we've heard of what's happened and we're trying to do what we can to change that, to change that trajectory, to do whatever. And Abby and I sit here with over a decade of education between us, degrees in criminal justice, pre-law, psychology, you name it, research studies. I mean, we've, we've worked, we've got combined thousands of hours working in this field. So know that when we're talking about these things, we're not naive and we're not uneducated. We're not inexperienced. We're talking about these things because we live this stuff in a way. Absolutely. And that these are the things that have mattered the most to us. And that's why we've sort of, I don't know, 
put our effort and our energy and our passion into trying to make the system a better one. Trying to help people grow, trying to help people prevent as much of this shit as they can. And make no mistake, it is never anybody's fault for not being able to prevent a heinous act that somebody else is committing. But it is the only thing that we have to grasp onto. When everything feels out of control, you focus on what you can control. And damn it, if all I can control is leaving a fingerprint in a car, I'm going to tell you that I can do that. And hopefully you can too. But when it comes to this shit, like we don't take it lightly. And we don't sit here. And gratefully, I am so glad that I'm doing this with Allie. I don't think I could do it with anybody else. But we don't do this to exploit it. We're not doing it to, you know, make money, create something cool and new to just use another tragedy to make a dollar. We are doing this because we care and because it's important and because these children deserve to have their stories told because they were only alive for eight years, 10 years max. And it's been what? Quadruple that since it happened? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to talk about it. And yeah, Fuck the news in this for getting too far ahead of it. All of this to say, you have our word that we will never give you that kind of bullshit. But I'm going to end my rant there. It is infuriating when families aren't even contacted yet about the circumstances of their loved one's death. And there's already 100 articles and 10 segments on repeat about the gruesome way it happened. They also were only told that their child died. They didn't know that there were two others. So imagine their surprise when not only they find out that it was a violent death, but that there were two more and that that wasn't even mentioned to them. I'd be so pissed. (laughs) Lori's siblings were devastated to lose their big sister. Her sister Misty said that she had lost her best friend and her roommate. And another sister of Lori's said that their carefree and happy nature was gone, that they just had this sorrow and pain in their lives that they would have to live with forever. They were anxious, afraid, and on edge waiting for the next shoe to drop. They had been proof that it doesn't just happen to anyone, and it can happen to you. And that's a very difficult thing to reconcile as a kid. A piece of their family had been stolen from them, but so had a piece of their innocence in their childhood. Gone were the days that they could just feel like kids without a care in the world. The siblings grieved their older sister, but they also grieved for their parents having lost a child, having lost their firstborn and the light in their family. And all around, it's heartbreaking. And even now, over 45 years later, the pain is visible in all of their eyes. There's a sadness that does not leave. And Lori's mother said, when we realized Lori was murdered, it was different than grief. It was anger. Good. Denise Milner's mother, Betty, couldn't believe it. She had just seen her the day before. She was in shock. She she could not actually handle, mentally digest what she'd been told. She didn't believe it. The autopsies were completed the next day, so June 14th. And if you are not Abby and you don't want to hear the cause of death of three beautiful babies, I don't blame you. Do what you need to do. But if you are, Abby, you do not have the luxury, and for that, I am sorry. And for the rest of you, you can hang in there with me. I want to warn you that it's graphic, um, but if they can go through it, as we say, we can talk about it. So we'll start with eight-year-old Lori Farmer. Her cause of death was determined to be a single blow. 
with a blunt instrument to the back of her head. Again, from the front, you wouldn't think she was dead. You wouldn't know that she wasn't sleeping. Mm. But she had been hit hard enough and in the right spot that she was dead almost instantly. For Michelle Gousset, her cause of death was also blunt force trauma to the head, but she had received six blows to the head as opposed to Lori's one. Mm. And I wonder if maybe that's age or size or something because Lori was only eight, Michelle being a year older, maybe it took more. Or maybe the scene was just so chaotic and by the time Lori was dead, Michelle was up and moving. Michelle was terrified. Michelle was awake. Now she noticed somebody was in the camp. We don't know. The cause of death for Denise was asphyxiation and strangulation. She'd also received three blows to the head, but that's not what killed her. All three of the girls had been bound and beaten. Swabs hadn't been done on all of them and revealed that all three had also been raped, which was just another piece of this that traumatized and devastated the families because with each new piece of information, it just got worse and worse and worse. In 1977, remember, we did not have DNA testing. Like we've said many times before, it was collected and they just sort of crossed their fingers and toes and hoped that they'd be able to use it someday and hoped that they'd preserved it in the right way. But really, we didn't have a whole lot we could do with it at the time. We just kind of hoped that technology would advance in a way, and in time, that the samples were still viable. Also found on or around each of, each of the bodies were hairs that were tested and determined not to be any of theirs. Hmm. So we've got semen present, and we've got hair. The sperm cells were unique in that they were all deformed and decomposed, which was really the only thing that they could tell from them at the time. Huh. But that this was a unique characteristic because that wasn't common. And comparing the injuries of each of the girls, they believed different instruments were probably used at first glance. Curious. Some left a mark that had straight lines, appeared to be rectangular in shape. Others had a bit of a curve. Some were bigger, some were smaller. Again, we didn't know what we didn't know at the time. We figured different instruments. Right. Still possible, but we'll talk more about that next episode. The funerals were held in the same week. Lori Farmer was buried the day after what would have been her ninth birthday and on Father's Day that year. The weekend that her family had planned on surprising her to celebrate her, they buried her instead. Denise Milner's mother was advised to have a closed casket due to her injuries, and she agreed to that, but she wanted to see her baby. She still hadn't believed that she was really gone. She hadn't believed that... Someone had taken her baby, and when she finally got to see her, though she could see the bruises and the cuts and the injuries to her, she said that she just looked beautiful and like she was sleeping. And she did have a closed casket. I am crying. <laughs> Michelle Gousset's... Fuck. You can't cry. I'm crying. <laughs> Michelle Gousset's funeral was held June 17th, and her family had her remains cremated. She had died the day before her parents' wedding anniversary, and they never celebrated it again. So back at Camp Scott, the investigation was ongoing. The law enforcement and the investigators in this case were so deeply disturbed by what they'd seen. Many of them had children. Many of them had daughters their age. They were all locals. They'd all known of this camp. They'd all been very familiar with Locust Grove. And no one could imagine something like this happening in their literal backyard. Yeah. So now they're breaking over the scene. They'd already gotten what they believed seemingly to be everything that was available at the exact scene, but now there are hundreds of acres that they're 
breaking through, just trying to figure anything. But you are quite literally looking for a needle in a 400-acre haystack. Yeah. Then the sheriff's department received a call reporting a theft. Jack Schroff had called to say that he was the victim of a break-in on his farmhouse. The Schroff farmhouse was on the same stretch of land as Camp, Camp Scott, and more specifically, it wasn't even a mile away. It was like three quarters of a mile from where the bodies were found. Oh, holy shit. And at this, everyone's ears perked up. Jack Schroff had reported that a roll of black duct tape and some nylon rope had been stolen from him. And these were oddly specific items that, if you asked me, could go unnoticed. If someone had stolen duct tape from me, I'd be like, oh my god, we had duct tape? No shit. <laughs> like, where? Same. Could you show me where that was, please? And obviously, I don't live on a farm, and I don't have many daily uses for that stuff, and maybe he did. But it was kind of looked like as oddly convenient that a man not a mile away from where these girls are killed says these things, odd, these very oddly specific things, are missing. And it gives him an oddly good upper hand if his prints are found on anything, because those items did belong to him, so of course they'd have his prints. Right. But unfortunately for Jack Schroff, I'm not the only person who was suspicious given this information. He was very thoroughly looked into by law enforcement, but his story checked out, and he passed a lie detector test. But that was not before the media had printed a photo of him in the paper calling him the Slayer. Are you fucking kidding me? To be accused was as good as convicted for him because once it was rumored he was the killer, he got death threats, harassing calls. I believe he was attacked. He was scared for his life. He was scared for his family. He was scared for his property because his face had been printed in the paper with the caption that everybody assumed meant that it was tried and true. It was done. And even after, law enforcement said, no, he's off our suspect list. It didn't matter. You can't just control Z that. Yeah. It was out there. It got so bad for him and sent him in such a spiral that he was accused and so many people believed that he had committed this horrible crime that he actually ended up hospitalized. Holy hell. We don't have any reason to suspect Jack Schroff. And from the killer's perspective, it wouldn't be a bad idea to take these common materials from someone you anticipate to have them and use them. Right. That way it can't be tied to you and investigators are going to look at him. And they started to believe that the killer had broken into his home, stolen these items, and then went to Camp Scott. Again, it's not even a mile away. Quick walk. And if you're a local and you know these woods, you're not going to get lost. You know exactly where you're going. Right. So then the investigation turns to interviewing counselors ASAP. One of the counselors said that she was woken in the middle of the night by the sound of giggling girls. Like I said, a small group of girls had gathered near the latrine and were whispering and giggling, and those little giggles had probably risen above the sound of a whisper, and so it was a little distracting, and it was like, all right, girls, go to bed now. At around 12 a.m., the girls were told to go back to their tent and try to go to sleep, Around 1.30, a counselor, I believe a different one, heard a really weird growling guttural sound that she said sounded like it could have been an animal, but also could have not been. Right. And it really freaked her out. And I could think at 18, if I'm in there in the woods, whether I'm in a leadership position or not, first of all, I wouldn't have signed up for that. I don't, I don't mess with that. <laughs> because if something happens, all anyone's got to do is outrun me and let me tell you that's easy. Okay? <laughs> so, not that I would sign up for it, but... At 18 years old, you hear a weird sound that you don't know if it's human or animalistic or what. 
freaks you out. Absolutely. And she had never heard anything like that before. So she got up and she waved her flashlight around in the direction of where she thought the sound was coming from and it stopped. Okay. So maybe she thought she spooked it or whatever it was. Right. She couldn't see anything. She went back to her tent. She laid down. She tried to fall asleep. She heard the noise again. But she stayed where she was. Other reports said that girls in tent seven were woken up by someone opening the flap of their tent and shining a flashlight at them. Remember, tent seven. Yeah. So the one just next to where the girls were sleeping. Right. In the middle of the night, someone had opened up the flaps, which again, there were absolutely no mechanisms, no protections, no safety, no security on these tents. So quite literally, anybody could go in and anyone could go out. In this case... Somebody holding a not super bright flashlight pointed it in their faces and then left. And all they could tell was that it was a man. No facial features, not a whole lot. I mean, they could kind of describe what he looked like. But when you're getting, you're just waking up with a light in your face, you're kind of looking more at the light, honestly. And also. And then it went away. Right. And how easy is it to see behind a light in the middle of the night? In pitch blackness? Yeah. And they probably thought at first, maybe, that it could have been a counselor just checking on them or something like that. Why they wouldn't have said anything or have just left and maybe it kind of did look like a dude. But, you know, these things weren't really talked about until afterwards. And this man apparently disappeared without a word. And they knew it was a man. That was about it. He left and he took off in the direction of tent eight. Okay. Others remembered hearing whimpering and what sounded like a girl crying for her mom. Shut up. But they couldn't identify it, and nobody did anything about it. Something else that came to light was that a note had been found more than a month beforehand at the, I believe it was like the counselor's training camp. Okay. A note was left behind in a donut box that said, we're on a mission to kill the girls in tent one. What? Now. There was testimony for this in the trial that we will get to, but there is a lot of debate. There's a lot of back and forth over the legitimacy of this because some sources say that the counselors admitted to writing it themselves as a prank. Others say that it was real. Regardless, though, if you believe that it's real, when it was given to management, management said it was a prank and threw it out anyway. Oh, good. So a lot of due diligence. Okay. So not entirely sure. Very well could have happened. But we don't have it. And it's really hard to do anything with not having it. When they backtrack further, they realize that some of the counselors had seen a man in the woods in the weeks leading up to camp beginning. Their protocol was just to approach the stranger and inform them that it's private property. Now you need to leave. That's it. Nothing else. Wow. Let me imagine, if you will, a man. I'll I'll say a man because they saw a man. Sure. A man intent on committing murder of three innocent babies. You tell me, you approach him, and you say, Sir, you need to leave. You are trespassing. And he goes, You're darn tootin'. Oh my god. My apologies. I didn't realize. That is that's where I draw the line. I will rape, murder, abduct, kidnap kids, but criminal trespass? Wouldn't dream of it. What deterrent <laughs> is you you know what I'm saying? And I don't know, being naive, being whatever, 
underfunded, overworked, I don't know what you want to call it. But with zero security, your counselors encouraged to approach this person to say, hey, you need to leave. Then what? What if he just sits down? What do you want him to do then? He's not hurting anybody. What, what? Also, what do you think? Also, when you're like 18, there's not a lot of urgency for this. How many of those 18-year-olds would call and make their own doctor's appointments, let alone approach some creepy guy that they see walking around and tell him to get lost? And also, what 18-year-old working at a Girl Scout camp has the voice and the umph in them to, like, legitimately be like, get out of here, go? Because even if, let's say, in a wild world, that this child rapist and murderer did somehow draw the fucking line at trespassing which is hysterical but let's say they did um if a child comes up to me and sorry i'm gonna call 18 a child for this but if a child comes up to me and says you need to go i'm gonna be like go fucking where tell your mom like what do you mean why don't you make me right there's just nothing they just had nothing to back it up it was like would you please go You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And while it's well and fine to have, you know, that this is private property and have it marked and have a fence and have whatever you want, you've got no actual boundaries. You know, you'd like to, I mean, they didn't have guns. They didn't have um, pepper spray. They didn't have anything like that. And of course, you never want to have to defend yourself, but you really hope you have something if you need it. Absolutely. And these girls were like armed with what, like their bug spray cans, their pillows from their cots, their s'mores sticks s'more sticks not even because they wouldn't keep those in the tent like that that's the extent of what we're talking about here while we'd like to think that unicorn shitting rainbow world is real it's not having no means of protecting the people that it's your responsibility to protect is beyond inappropriate is beyond unprofessional is beyond careless It's criminal. Absolutely. And mind you, this is not the counselor's fault. This should be an employer employment, place of employment, business running the camp business. This is not the 18-year-old's job. Just so we're aware, Allie and I are not saying that. Oh, no. This is not the counselor's fault. I give the counselor's props for feeling safe enough to do that because I sure as shit wouldn't. Right. The counselors were also all asked if anything of theirs was missing, right? They'd found weird items at the scene. They were trying to figure out, had this person or these people been around? What's going on? And one perked up and said that she was missing her purse and everything that was in it. Another said some aviator sunglasses. And another said that she was missing her prescription eyeglasses. Well, would you look at that? And these were determined to be the very glasses found next to the bodies. Which must have been, for that girl, fucking horrifying. The person or people who committed probably the most violent, vicious, depraved, evil attack you could think of in your, let's just say, let's assume she's on the higher end, 25 years, was next to your fucking face, grabbing your glasses. Yep. And then in rubbing through your stuff, left them there. And I, 
I'm with you. The fact that they were close enough to me would be the part that would have me like shitting. But the idea that you didn't even you didn't even fucking take those because you needed them. You were just gonna leave them there. Who takes somebody else's glasses? I'm blind as a bat. I'm not gonna take someone else's glasses. I still can't see with those shits. I would put your glasses on and I would walk into a wall. Yes. Maybe that's why I walk into walls. But <laughs> I sure as shit wouldn't take somebody else's prescription to go and leave them on the fucking ground. But doesn't it leave this haunting, icky, skin crawl feeling to know? Because if they weren't found there, I'd be like, shit, did I leave those on the hike or did I lose them by the lake? Right. Did one of those kids take it, those little shits? Yeah. Or even just like, well, shit, did it fall between the cracks in the board under the tent? Now I can't get to it. Like, there's a million possibilities. And we're all human. We all doubt ourselves because we all lose shit. We all forget shit. So why wouldn't that be the case? And then to find out the actual boogeyman rummaged through your things. Close enough to kiss you on the cheek. And pick an eight-year-old over you. That that would fucking wreck me. I feel like this is every camper's worst nightmare to have someone sneak up on you and enter your tent while you're asleep. This person went tent to tent and took items and then got to the very last tent where the youngest camper slept, where there were only three girls, not four, where they were the furthest away from the adults and the rest of the camp. The closest to the woods. He chose that one. Investigators got their first real lead three days after the murders. This was June 16th. Hunters had been hunting and found a cave that appeared to be where someone was living. Someone had been squatting. There were things left around, little like nest egg, little maid that was very clear that someone had been living there. Okay. Hands wrappers living material yep yeah and there were items scattered about in the cave that was a little odd now this cave was only three miles from the murder site not far not far inside the cave was even more interesting investigators found part of a black trash bag some masking tape curious broken aviator sunglasses Hmm. And a piece of newspaper. Any of this sound familiar? Um, as it uh, should. Yeah, check, check. Actually, fucking all of it. Yeah, chills. Absolute chills. And I'll fast forward to the exciting part because this shit matches. Remember how at the crime scene there was that big flashlight with the trash bag over the lens, secured with the tape. Yep. Well, the bag and the masking tape match those found in the cave. And I don't mean just matching as in, oh, they're the same brand from the same company or the same whatever. No, no, no. I mean what they call a fracture match, which is if you if you were to break your forearm and you fractured it and they would look at it in the x-ray, you would see that one side mirrors the other one. Why? Because they fit together fucking perfectly. Yep. The role of the masking tape that was found at the cave, where it had been ripped, matched where it had been ripped on flashlight. That's so fucking eerie. Ugh. Now, like a puzzle, okay? The bag, same deal. Remember the newspaper that was found inside the flashlight? Mm-hmm. Lined up perfectly with a piece of newspaper found at the cave. 
Absolutely it did. Of course it did. Direct link from the crime scene to this cave, which meant whoever had been squatting there had been at the crime scene. They also found photos. Okay. I hate when they find photos. There were two black and white photos. The first one had two women that were smiling. The second one had one woman who was, like, not smiling, I guess. Huh. But these women were beautiful, and they were wearing, like, these gowns, like they were at some sort of formal event. Okay. And these photos seemed like the golden ticket to law enforcement. They could identify the women in the photos and find out where and when they were taken. They believed that they'd be another step closer to finding who did this. Absolutely. So investigators at OSBI worked hours and hours and hours on trying to identify them. They wanted to know what event this was, where these might have happened, what time of the year it might have been, and despite all of these efforts, they were no closer to answers. And I don't even know where you begin to start to look for that in 1977. Yeah, right now I'd Google, but sure shit wasn't the norm then. So they came to the conclusion that they would actually have to include the press in this to release the photos publicly and ask for the public's help in identifying the women in the photos or if they recognized the event or if they recognized the dress or if the, anything. Give us anything that you might have. Oh, that can be such a double-edged sword. And they received a call almost immediately. Okay. The photographer had called in to say that those were his photos but he wasn't sure how that was possible because he had the originals and he had the proofs. And obviously this guy is denying anything to do with the murders. He's not saying like, oh, well, I have the originals and the proof because it's mine because I was living there because I killed those kids. Absolutely. No, he's just saying, I don't know how this is it, but I took those photos. Now, a reminder here that we are still indeed in the 70s. So no, the photos were not airdropped to friends or shared on a OneDrive. <laughs> to family or post it on facebook or instagram and <clears throat> shameless plug don't forget to follow us on instagram about time for true crime pod with periods in between the words um but these photos were developed in a dark room and as it turns out this photographer was only a part-time photographer because his real job his full-time job his day job was a prison guard all right mm. And he worked at the state prison in Granite, Oklahoma. The inmates there had work opportunities, and one of those opportunities was working in the dark room developing the photos. The, the photographer slash prison guard said that there was only one person who would have access to those photos and have access to the dark room because he was the dark room technician. And it was a former inmate. Oh. This former inmate's name was Jean Leroy Hart. Huh. And that is where I'm going to leave you in part one. You are an asshole. So much. And I love you. Love you so much. And I hate this. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So that is where I'm going to make you wait. Well, I promised you all that I'd cry, and I did. I am so excited for part two. I'm pissed because I'm going to have to wait for part two. Yes. And wow. Just a big fat wow. Yeah. You know, if you need mental health services, call 988. I might. I'm stressed. <laughs> Utilize psychology today. Take care of yourself. Call a friend. Have a pod pet member. Pet your pod pets. Yes, please do. Give hug. them a chin scratch from us. A little boop on the nose. A little head butt. 
Yeah. Little treat, little catnip, little gogurt. Yeah. We call the little squeeze up things gogurts for my cat, and she fucking goes nuts, dude. Oh. I hope she wins that uh cruise with the Sprouse twins. <laughs> do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't win. I wonder if anybody ever did. Dylan, Cole, uh, that ever happened or not? And when are we going? So let me know. Hit us up. One of them has like a brewery now. Oh. He like said goodbye acting. Huh. For him. Yeah. It'll change the scenery. Oh my gosh. There's a video on the internet of Adam Sandler. And- on the internet, she says. On the internet. Uh-huh. On the internet. I, I was watching it, my stories. But it was on the interwebs. There's a video of oh Jennifer Aniston, I think, and Adam Sandler. They find out how old one of the Sprouse twins were. Well, obviously, both of them. <laughs> Only me. one of them. <laughs> now, wait till you hear how old the other one is. And Adam Sandler was like, what the fuck? I don't know if he said fuck, but he, like, the reaction is priceless. I just, I can't get over this. This is so bad. And the reason why I didn't want to make it so many extra parts. First of all, it is fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to do a disservice by spreading things out so much that it loses what happened. Yeah. But also, there is no closure. As it stands today, and this is public knowledge, there is nobody convicted for this crime. And I will share my opinion with who I think did it. Right. And we'll talk about other theories. And we'll talk about other possibilities. But we aren't any closer. We don't have anyone for this. It is a cold case, an unsolved case. And every investigator involved from 1977 to 2022, our last update, has been scarred by what happened to these little girls. Well, and frankly, I mean, I know we had our little soapbox earlier about how frustrating it is when news and media and press get on cases like this before there is time to confirm, there's time to validate and verify and all of these things. But also, I think part of the frustration with that is that it spreads the word so quickly that it allows for more time for cover-up. It tells whoever did it, if they're watching the news, and I assume they are, they know what's had. They know what evidence is collected. They know what they left that wasn't collected, that was overbrushed in the pile of leaves over there that they have time to go back and get. And it's so fucking frustrating. Not because no investigation will ever be solved before the media gets involved. That's not it. But when it's so fast, time is of such the essence at the beginning of all of this that, you know, we've said and I've said before, I believe in our constitutional rights, which does include proof beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So even if we think we know who it is, if there's just not enough to get there, we can't convict. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit, right? So like, I believe in that. I really do. But it's also part of what makes this so frustrating. The other issue with media releasing information prematurely is that law enforcement should be, most of the time is, I guess, I hope, at least now, very intentional 
with what they release. And there is a method to that. Because if you release every single detail that you have or you believe that you have, then you're going to get false confessions always. You're going to get false tips always. And you'll have nothing. You will have shown all your cards. You've got nothing to cross-reference between what might be the truth, what only the killer might know, and what you know. And when the media gets a hold of it, it's not like they've hacked into their computers and have released all the records, but they might find out something or hang around something or overhear something or get a copy of something they shouldn't have. But if it bleeds, it leads. And so it gets released and that can undermine the investigation. And I'm not saying that that's what happened here, but it does happen and it might have, but it changes the course of events. It changes and impacts, sometimes negatively, the way that the investigation goes. And you're playing with an animal with that. We're going to talk about the aftermath, and we're going to talk about where the families are today. I love that we do that. And then that will be it. And then I will put some distance between myself and living in this horror and buy some Girl Scout cookies. And it does, it just, it gives me a different perspective on all of that and how exciting it would be to have a little, have a little kid who wants to be a Girl Scout or a little Boy Scout who wants to go and have all that fun and do all those fun things. And you're so excited to send your little baby there. And oh my God, the cute little bit of independence they're going to have. And they're going to make lifelong friends. It'll be like the kids that'll be like spending dinner at your house in 10 years from then. Oh, remember when we learned to make whatever? Mm -hmm. And how awesome that is. And then all of that, every single bit of that was robbed from you in the most evil way. What do you do with that? I am never going to not think about trading a ninth birthday party and a Father's Day celebration for a funeral. I am never not going to think of that. I think this is a great place to stop. I think. Before you cry again, because I can't look at you. Okay. I think this is a great place to stop. I think we all need a little levity. I think we do. And I think hug your pod pets. Give them a big old smooch. Take a little selfie giving them a hug and a smooch and send them to our Instagram so that we can put all of those compilations of little loves together and hopefully make a very sweet pod pet post. But you could do that by taking that little selfie and sending it to us on Instagram. You'd look us up at about time for true crime pod with periods in between every word. So that's A B O U T period T I M E period F O R period T R U E period Z R I M E period P O D because podcast was too long. But if you need to process, journal, let us know your thoughts, let us know all of the things that you screamed about when you heard this, like me, um, you can definitely do that via email. But Allie, where would they do that? So if you wanted to send us an email, first of all, we'd absolutely love that. We would love your Again, more of your pod pets. We're never not going to say that, but we'd also appreciate your feedback on the case, your case recommendations. Pop on and say hi. If you want to email, you would email that too. About time, the number four, tc at gmail.com. So that's A B O U T T I M E, numeric four, tc at gmail.com. We would love to see you over there. And if you do email us, 
Tell us your favorite Girl Scout cookie. Mine's a Samoa or a frozen Thin Mint. Mine's a Thin Mint. My fiance always puts them in the freezer. As they should be. And what else do I like? I don't mind the peanut butter ones. I think those are dosey dos. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Cute little things. Yeah. Oh. I like the Samoas. Those are like the caramel chocolate coconut. Mm-hmm. I also really like Tagalongs, which is like the chocolate peanut butter. Oh, that's the Tagalongs. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. The dosey dos are like peanut butter sandwiches. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. The Tagalongs. Okay. There you go. <laughs> there it is. Yep. Those are really great as s'mores, by the way. Oh. But anyway, we would love to see you there. If you are feeling extra down and sad like we are, please remember that our Instagram has memes and reprieves and all kinds of resources, not only for your mental health, but for places to donate and look into if you want to help others. If I take a look at my watch, I believe that that was about time for a true crime. Bye. Bye, you guys. Take care.